Well, good morning. And I trust you've been reminded this week of the goodness and faithfulness of our Heavenly Father and the steadfastness of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and the presence of the Holy Spirit at work in your heart and in your life. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, open them with me to the Gospel of John, chapter number 6. If you're visiting with us, we're going through a study in the Gospel of John, and uh, we've been working our way through, looking at uh, the glory uh, of Christ, really, as we look at John's account of Jesus' life and ministry and what it all means, Uh, and we have uh, arrived at And you're here for John 6, verses 1 through 15. Uh, As you have found your place, I'm going to read these first 15 verses. Before I do, let me just encourage you, uh, church, to be praying for the men's conference or sportsmen's dinner uh, this coming weekend. uh, And just pray God would use that as an opportunity for the gospel to go out and just bless uh, uh, the people. Uh, that come out to hear the speakers and and all that will go on there. Uh, Likewise, the women's um, conference coming up in May. And and didn't that sound good? May. And we're we're getting close, right? I know right now it seems like you don't know what to do when you go outside or how to go outside, but but spring is coming. Uh, Yeah, it'll get here. So... um, be, be in prayer for that. I, I would just encourage you to pray for that. John chapter number 6. I'm going to begin reading in verse number 1. You can follow along with me. I'm reading through the ESV. That's uh, the Pew Bible in front of you. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. What are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down, and there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing be lost, may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. Pray that you would just open our eyes, uh, that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. Lord, I pray for uh, my heart and 
uh, our hearts collectively as we gather together this morning, that you would help us to uh, lay aside distractions, those things that uh, entangle us, and that we would uh, listen. Uh, Lord, we pray that your spirit will work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Augustine, a 5th century church theologian, said this concerning the passage, God has agreeably to his mercy reserved to himself certain works beyond the usual course and order of nature, which he should perform on fit occasions that they by whom his daily works are lightly esteemed, that they may be struck with astonishment and beholding. He says, this is not indeed greater, but uncommon works. For certainly the government of the whole world is greater miracle than the satisfying of 5,000 men with five loaves. And yet no man wonders at the former, but the latter men wonder at. Not because it is greater, but because it is rare. So why do you say what Augustine said? Well, I thought it was interesting as he looks at the miracles. He says, God has done things in space and time, which he refers to as uncommon, uh, to bring about a certain amazement. Uh, We stand back and we stand amazed because at times we're slow to be amazed at the normal work that God does day in and day out. Now, whether you think this miracle is greater than the normal course of God's provision or not, It doesn't really matter because when you read it, you cannot help but be taken back by this narrative. Jesus is given to us as a shepherd who causes the flock to sit down in grass as he takes provision and feeds them and they are satisfied. It brings us to the mind of Psalms 23, doesn't it? Where he says, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. And here This multitude finds their satisfaction in his provision. It isn't just that. It is how the thing plays out, the ridiculousness in one way or the absurdity that you have a little boy's lunch of five biscuits and two fish and the task of feeding 5,000, the equivalent of maybe 15 to 20,000. And to add on top of that, you have our beloved disciples as an example of us, don't you? And stand there amazed at the whole thing, uh, focused on their own limitations and shortcomings and limited resources instead of focusing on God's ability and God's resources. Well, there's many things that we could look at in this passage, and we'll discuss it uh, this morning. I want to give you four points to kind of help us navigate through this because we can take a lot out of it. In fact, this is the only miracle uh, in the four Gospels that's repeated by all four writers, Um, this feeding of the 5,000. Not only is it the only miracle recorded, but in John's Gospel, this, uh, this beginning 15 verses sets us up for 49 verses of teaching about who Jesus is and about him being the bread that has come down from heaven. You see that at the latter end of chapter number 6. We'll get to that. Uh, He himself has come down to satisfy the hunger of men. So I thought it'd be easy this morning as we navigate through this. There's so much in here that uh, to set these four headings in front of you, and if you take notes, might help you a little bit. 
uh, the first of which is the setting, uh, the demand, the provision, and the withdrawal. Uh, Now, it is uh, not always easy to walk through a narrative like this, but I hope this will help us a little bit. So let us get our feet under us and see what's going on, beginning at the first part of this in chapter number 6, and look at the setting where this miracle has taken place. The Bible says, after this, now after a period of time, naturally after chapter number 5 and the events that happened in Jerusalem, uh, and we need not think that this was like the next week or the next day, or or it was actually a good space of time that took place between chapter number 5 and chapter number 6. John is just kind of helping us keep the ball moving uh, down the field. And he says, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing. And so Jesus and his disciples, they go to somewhere south of Bethsaida, uh, Bethsaida. And as they go there, they're in a desert place, a hilly place, and they go there to take rest or to, to gain some refreshment, take a day off, you might say, like that. Mark 6 really gives us some of the idea of what is going on here uh, for the reason why they're going to, uh, to get away from the multitude. Now, let me just read verse 30 for you through 32 of Mark 6. The apostle returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place, desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure to eat. They went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. So you think Mark is trying to tell us something. They went away by themselves to a desolate place. They went away by themselves to a desolate place. Uh, One old preacher had said this, uh, they needed to come apart using the King James language before they come apart. Uh, Do you get that? Uh, They were stressed, they were exhausted in, in, uh, in this season that they were in. They needed a break, they needed some solitude, some rest, they needed some alone time with Jesus to collect their thoughts together uh, and and to just recuperate. We can sympathize with that. In fact, we live in a vacation area where people come away to rest and we that live here are wondering where do we go to rest because uh, we're here. Some people may think we do that all the time anyway. But Mark tells us more than just the fact of they were going away to rest. Jesus had just sent the 12 disciples out to minister, to cast out demons and to heal the sick and preach the kingdom of God uh, to the multitudes as they were going from town to town. Uh, Jesus' ministry was growing and his, his popularity was growing, so he sends out his disciples and he sends them out to further the reach and further the message of the kingdom of God. They come back to Jesus. They begin telling all the things that had taken place and all the things that God did through them miraculously and powerfully. And Jesus says, you need to, you need to rest. We, we, need to, we need some alone time to add to that. Mark tells us John the Baptist had just been martyred. And if you recall, in the first part of the Gospel of John, several of Jesus' early followers were disciples of John. So you have this exhaustion from ministry. You have this exhaustion from grief of loss 
mourning of this man of God that they that they were associated with. And, and not only that, you have this exhaustion because you just simply hadn't had time to eat. People constantly coming and wanting and receiving and taking, and they hadn't had time to sit down and eat. In fact, as they add to this, as they got in the boat and they go to the uh, the east side of the Sea of Galilee, we find in verse number two, a large crowd was following Jesus because of the signs they saw that he was doing on the sick. And as Jesus went up to the mountain, he sat down with his disciples. Verse number five, it says, he lifted up his eyes and he saw the large crowd coming. In fact, Mark tells us in his account, it says, Jesus, no longer, he didn't even get out of the boat. The crowd was waiting on him. They were going from town to town, collecting the multitude, getting more and more as they figured out where he was going, and they decided, let's cut him off at the pass. Let's, let's get to where he's at, and, and let's, uh, let's see what he's doing and what he's all about. John tells us it's because they were amazed he was healing the sick. Now, we may think Jesus would have said to the multitude, okay, guys, you can come back tomorrow. Today's not the day for this. And yet we don't see that. In fact, as he sees the multitude, the Bible says he, was, uh, he had compassion on them, seeing them as sheep having no shepherd, or one commentator said there was a ragtag army waiting for a general. You'll see that at the end of this. And so here at all of this exhaustion, Jesus seeing the people, he was moved with compassion. And so he spent the day ministering to them, preaching the gospel, healing the sick and teaching, doing all the things that he had been doing all the while. His disciples were there doing all the things they were supposed to be doing while Jesus was teaching. There goes, there goes the vacation, ruined, so to speak. Some 10,000 to 20,000 people gathered around waiting for Jesus to get out of the boat and to take from him more and more. And it was not just a pressure on Jesus himself. It would be a pressure upon his disciples that they would feel. And so that's kind of the setting we get to in the miracle taking place in the first five verses to 5a. They're lifting up his eyes, seeing the multitude. Second, I want us to notice the demand there was a demand of the crowd in Mark 6. There's demand by their presence and them being like sheep without a shepherd as he began to teach them many things concerning the kingdom of God. There was a demand as he was healing them and, and, and casting out demons, all the things that he was doing with them that day. But there's also a demand of the disciples in Mark 6 as well. And I'll read that for you. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. The hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. So the disciples come to Jesus. Time to close the camp meeting time to stop the revival, the service, whatever. It's time to send them home. We're hungry. They're hungry. They need to go find something to eat. Now, it could very well be that the disciples meant nothing bad by this. It may, may mean that they seen the reality that it was late and the people would need to go eat somewhere and go find somewhere to rest. They were in a place where they could not receive that. 
but it also might have mean that they themselves wanted to eat and realized they couldn't eat while five to 20,000 people were roaming around. And so the disciples say to Jesus, send them away. But the most remarkable thing about this account is really the demand Jesus gives. And Mark, he says it this way. He answered them after having them, uh, having been asked by them to send them home. He says, you give them something to eat. Jesus is looking at his apostles. He's looking at his disciples and they're saying, send them home so they can give them something to eat. And he looks at them and says, no, how about you feed them? What, a, what, what kind of statement is that? You're talking about a sea of people. Um, some of the men went to a conference last year in April and it's somewhere around 15,000 people. You stood in that auditorium. It was just heads everywhere. People. And could you imagine the men that went with me with that? Could you imagine Jesus staying up, hand you a, a Chick-fil-A sandwich and, and some stuff like that and say, go feed them. It's, it's the most ridiculous thing we could ever think of. In fact, he looks to Philip in, in John chapter number 6, verses 5 through 7. And he says, lifting up his eyes, then seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread that all these people may eat? Now, some wonder why he asked Philip. He was from the region. Uh, and so maybe that's one reason he asked him. I think he asked him maybe for that, but also because he tends to respond a lot like we would in that situation, doesn't he? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Well, after he gets done counting, he says, if we had eight months of salary, eight months worth of money of someone of a normal salary, we couldn't even buy a, a snack for everyone. What do you mean, where are we going to go buy food for these people? And Jesus was doing this to test them. He knew himself what he would do, but he was, he was putting the situation in front of them. What will you do when you are, when you're without resources and the need is in front of you? Well, Philip is a lot like us. We count, we add up, we have limited resources, so we, we, we just put it to death. We put an end to it. There's no way we're left with the impossibility of it. There's no way we could feed that many people. There's no way we could do this. There was no Target. There was no Walmart or Sam's Club or any of those things like that where they could just go get some stuff and feed them. In fact, food in those days took a long time to prepare. It was not an easy task. You didn't just go out and buy in bulk like that. It was difficult. And Philip answers with a realist attitude. Now, you and I are pretty hard on Philip and the disciples, aren't we? How many of you raise your hand? You think they mess up a lot? They do. Now, Philip should have connected the dots. Jesus took six jars of water and turned them into what? Based out of his own will to turn the water into wine, Jesus took those pots and turned water into wine not to mention the healings that they themselves did, the preaching, casting out demons they themselves did, as well as watching Jesus do. In fact, in one of the gospel narratives, he had just raised someone from the dead before you get to this account that took place. 
And yet you and I have all of these records in front of us, and I still find that we are, we, we are pushed up against the wall with the obvious limitations of our resources and abilities. We walk in the same manner as Philip and the rest of the disciples. In fact, what we find here is Jesus bringing his disciples at the end of themselves so that he may use them and show them something of the strength and mercy and power of God through them. Uh, They were at the end of their physical resources. They were at the end of their strength, at the end of their imagination. We know that by Philip's response. But was that true? As Jesus is talking to Philip and he's thinking about all that they have and all that they can do, was it true? Well, no, it wasn't. Because standing in front of them was Jesus, the very divine Son of God. There at the very beginning, who was able to speak the world into existence. They were looking at the problem through the lens of themselves and what they had, not looking at the situation through the lens of God and the resources he possesses. I could not help but connect with Philip uh, this year as we were looking over the budget, doing the math and calculating, thinking about people leaving and, and people moving and and how many come to church and the needs of the church and the ministry center and all those things up there. And I kept coming at the end of the day, wow, how are we going to do this? But I was looking at it all through the numbers in front of me, not looking at it through the lens of if God is for us, if God is in this, then will he not provide for us? Has he not been faithful in the past? Yes, we should say. Well, then will he not be faithful with our needs now? Let me thirdly consider with you for a moment the provision. We looked at the demand, the setting of the miracle. Now look at the miracle itself, the provision. And Mark, Jesus says to the disciples and their response, we don't have enough money to cover this. There's, there's just not enough money. And Jesus says to them, how many loaves do you have? Uh, and he tells them, go and find out. Go see what kind of substance you got. See what kind of food you have. And so the disciples, they go out and they they go find. Andrew finds a boy. We don't know anything about him. We don't know anything about his mom, what she was thinking that morning or what she was doing, uh, how she packed the lunch, what she hummed. Maybe she read Psalms 119 as she was packing it. We don't know any of that stuff. I'll leave that for your imagination. What we do know is what Andrew does when he comes back as he sees Jesus, and we see that in verse number 8. One of his disciples, Andrew Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fishes. Now we're getting somewhere. Five biscuits, not loaves of bread. It wasn't Sarah Lee. It wasn't loaves of bread. It was a poor man's breakfast. It was small biscuits and two fishes. And he says, what is this among so many? Wouldn't you have said the same thing? So give Andrew a break. At least he's coming to Jesus with the problem, right? In fact, that what you find with Andrew, he's continually bringing people to Jesus. He may not have great faith in this moment, but at least he's going to the right source 
And plus you'll meet Andrew one day and, and maybe he knows you give him a hard time. And yet he brings this boy with his small provisions. What are they among so many? That's a good question to ask. But isn't this the way God tends to do things? To take those things that are insufficient in and of themselves, insignificant, to take the impossibilities and and, and use them in a way, in a, in, a, in a magnificent way to where he receives all the glory. To defy our math with a providing an abundance with those things which we need by those things which could not be sufficient without him. You might recall your Old Testament Bible as God calls Abram unto himself and promises him that he will be a father of nations who's married to a wife who's barren. Or the Exodus as the children of Israel come out of the come out of the Red Sea and they're there in the wilderness and God provides them manna to eat. Or David, a shepherd who stands before Goliath, a man of war. Or Elijah and the widow's small portion or small measure of oil and grain which continued throughout the famine in Elijah's day. Or one prophet among 400 prophets of Baal. Five biscuits and a couple of fishes defeat 5,000 people. It's remarkable to think about. Or a small band of followers on the day of Pentecost with a commission to carry the gospel unto the nations. God tends to continually remind us of the small and insignificant things in His hand make a big difference. He receives the food and He multiplies it. He did not need them. He was there when the world was created out of nothing, yet he chooses to use our meager resources in a way that brings him glory. Praise God for that. Our offerings and our gifts and our talents, all in a way which he multiplies continually over and over. Now he does this in a way that's not chaotic. He sits the people down in grass and divides them up in fifties and hundreds and the disciples would go out and give the food which gives us a good pattern of ministry. But I want to just ask you this morning, do you believe God can do much with little? But what about your life? What about your gifts and and your talents. Now, there may be some among us who are odd and they see themselves as, as greatly talented and greatly gifted and, and very useful for the kingdom's sake. But I would say for the most of us, we see ourselves in the lens of this little boy, don't we? There's not much about us. But we should not be discouraged because that is the kind of people God always uses. And even if we were something or had great resources compared to the task that lays in front of the church to evangelize the world, to be a light in this world, to, to, to do all that God has called us to do, what is, what, is a, what, is, what is that among so many? If you could sum up all that we have and all we're gifted with, isn't it just much like this little boy's 
lunch, a few biscuits, a few fishes. And yet we are encouraged that as we give them to Christ, he is able to do far more abundantly with those things than we we were able to do with them ourselves. I was talking to Ed about this this past week, and he was sharing an example of this in the life of our church, this kind of faith and action. During the process of buying the ministry center, some of you might recall who were here during that time, um, we bought the property for $1.2 million. And one of the things that stood out to Ed during that year of trying to get that money together, we didn't go in debt for the building uh, or for the property down the road. And and one of the things that Ed said stood out in his mind is when children started bringing in money in $10 or $20 and they were saying out loud, I don't know if they who they told, but they were saying out loud, well, now we can go by the ministry center. <laughs> that's, that's nice. <laughs> $20, million. Oh, what is that among so many? And I know many of you gave sacrificially in the process of that, but isn't it really individually just like this here? It was just biscuits and fish. And yet the Lord has multiplied it many times over throughout the years. I think William Carey, who trying to awake a drowsy church in his day that existed, as one writer put it, when they lived in a day of small things, as he told them to expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Would God awaken us uh, to the reality of his abilities to exceed our expectations, to bless our efforts, and to multiply our usefulness. We need to be reminded of that, church. We don't minister out of our own resources. We don't minister out of our own giftedness alone. We put all of that in the Lord's hands, and we pray and ask him to make much of it uh, in a way that would please and honor him. Notice he says here in his provision... At the end of this, he took the loaves and he gave thanks and he distributed them to those who were seated. The disciples gave them out at the end of verse number 11 and they had as much as they wanted. They were full. As much as they wanted. Satisfied. And some people say, well, what happened here? Jesus gave little fragments and it was like communion. You know, when you come to communion, you have the little pieces and you have a little drink. And so uh, that the miraculous nature of this miracle was the fact that just that little bite and, and was enough to satisfy their hunger. I don't think that's true to you. Why would you have 12 baskets left over if that's the case? Others say what had taken place here is that that people saw the little boy give them the lunch and they felt guilty by that and they started bringing out their own lunches and started sharing their own food. So that was the multiplication. People just shared what they had. Well, I mean, if you don't believe the miraculous nature of the word of God, there's you uh, something you can lean on, but I don't think that's the case. Christ multiplied this boy's lunch in a way that satisfied everyone's hunger. 
And later on, he will tell us in the next, at the end of this chapter, that is because he has come to satisfy men's deepest longing and need. He is the bread of life which has come down from the Father. But notice verse number 12 with me. When they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. What do you do with that? Well, it was a tradition among the Jews not to waste. So after a meal, they would gather up everything that was over. It's not like it is in our day. Um, And so maybe that's just what he's doing. But it also may be a reminder of his disciples that not only did he feed the multitude, but he would also take care of them. One minister said these baskets were akin to what we would consider a lunchbox to where they could carry a couple of days worth of food in. And, and so they would, they would be carrying around for the next couple of days the provision of Christ feeding the 5,000. It's a continual reminder of his goodness and his provision for them. Well, it is something to be reminded that not only will Christ provide our needs, but he will continue to provide our needs in abundance. Now, let me mention the fourth thing here that we find in our text. So we have the provision. We have the demand. We have the setting, but let me mention the withdrawal. Look at verse 14 and 15. When the people saw the signs that he had done, they said, This is indeed a prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Well, this was a time when the writer tells us earlier in verse number four, a time of the Passover. The Jewish nation would have been Um, they would have been very patriotic during this season, similar to our 4th of July, someone has said. Uh, They would have been thinking, their minds concentrating on God's deliverance and his promise of a Messiah that was to come. In fact, you see some similarities here uh, in the language. Not only did Moses provide manna from heaven, but here Christ is feeding the multitude. They were anticipating a new exodus that God had promised in the Old Testament, but it was not an exodus from sin and from death and from condemnation, from the judgment of God. It was an exodus from Rome. It was deliverance from Herod, who was ruling over them as Rome's puppet king. They wanted Christ in the sense of what he would give to them. They wanted for the means of which he would provide for them, and that is their own independence. And so they would, he would either be king or he would take them and make, or they would make him king by force. You think about 5,000 men, not counting the women and children, maybe 15,000, 20,000 people here. Uh, Jesus is starting out with a pretty good army already, wouldn't he? I mean, that's a pretty good crowd. In fact, you even see this kind of military language where he sets them down in, in groups of 50 and groups of 100 and, and as they prepare to eat. I mean, wouldn't that be an awesome general, not, not limited by the resources of, of needing food and all this other stuff? He can just make it. They could keep on fighting and keep on, 
keep on delivering themselves from oppression. And what a temptation for Jesus. The Son of God who's come into the world to be offered a kingdom without a cross be offered with prestige and prominence to be set above people which he rightly deserved and he will one day receive from the hand of the Father. But here it's offered to him by the hand of the multitude, by the hand of the crowd who wants something from him. In fact, John's, Mark's language is, is interesting for us. It says immediately he went away to a private place by himself because of the response of the people who would have him have him come and deliver them, but that is not what Christ came the first time to deliver them from, Rome. And that's not what he offers to us now as we seek him as a deliverer, is it? But it's from the oppression of our guiltiness, the oppression of our sin. It's from the reality that we have all sinned against God in the condemnation which which belongs to that disobedience. Christ came into the world not to be lifted up by a ragtag mob to make king to throw away Caesar. No, he's, he's come to face death and conquer death so that one day you and I might enter into his presence. And because they did not come to him for who he is and what he had to offer, the Bible says he withdrew himself from them. We must, if we are to receive Jesus, we must receive him on his own terms and not ours. He is not a means to the end, but he is the source of life, the one who gives life. And we must come in that fashion by faith, turning from our own ways to him and his ways. And so he does that, doesn't he? He withdraws from them. He goes to the mountain and he seeks the Father. Well, there's much in this, much more that could be said about this, but it's again a good reminder that as we come to see Jesus and his provision for us in feeding the 5,000, he continues to amaze us and provide for us in miraculous ways. Through the little gifts and talents that we offer up, may God be glorified and may he multiply them in a way to meet the needs around us. I think that's what he desires from us. And I would just say this, this morning if you're visiting, you don't know who Christ is, you've never put your faith and trust in him, I would encourage you to talk to someone before the day's over. I'd love to speak with you after the service and share the gospel with you. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this morning that we gather together. Thank you for the provision that we have in Christ and his goodness. And I pray that you would, you would help us, not only as we look at the world around us, but help us to look at it through the, the lens of your ability and your might and your resources. Lord, help us to look at it in a way um, that we ourselves are submissive to offer to you what you have given to us and so that we might be used by you. Lord, help us this day as we uh, leave here. In Jesus' name, amen.